Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 434. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your guest ghost, Cryptkeeper Norm. We continue this week with part two of The Shadow Over Innsmouth by H.P. Lovecraft. And as I'm sure you're just ululating to get on with it, let's shamble on in. We bring you part two of The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Good God, man. Why didn't you tell me this before? I didn't believe him, McGraw. It was an episode at once mad and pitiful, grotesque and terrifying. But, puerile though the weird allegory was, old Zadok's insane earnestness and horror added to my sense of loathing for the town and its blight of intangible shadow. The hour had grown perilously late. My watch said 7.15, and the Arkham bus left Town Square at 8, so I walked rapidly toward the hotel where I'd checked my bag and would find my bus. Near the corner of Fall Street, I began to see scattered groups of whisperers. <laughs> when I finally reached the square, I saw that almost all the loiterers were congregated around the door of the Gilman house. It seemed as if many bulging, watery, unblinking eyes looked oddly at me as I claimed my valise in the lobby, and I hoped that none of these unpleasant creatures would be my fellow passengers on the coach. I stood next to an evil-looking fellow and was greatly relieved to see the bus arriving a few minutes early. Excuse me. Excuse me, please. <clears throat> one ticket to Arkham, one way. The bus is broke. What? Bus is broke. But you just... Ends in trouble. Not going anywhere. Oh. When will it be fixed? Maybe tomorrow. Tomorrow? It can't be fixed tonight? No. Nope. Well... Is there some other way I can get to Arkham tonight? I'm expecting... There ain't no other way. Can't go nowhere. Have to spend the night. Gilman House will give you a room cheap. No other way. You again. Yeah, hello. Um, the bus uh, broke down. I got a room for ye. Well, my funds are rather... Uh, Large room, <laughs> top floor, no water, one dollar. Um, yes. Well, then that will be fine. Room 428, all the way up. My room was a dismal rear one, with two windows and bare, cheap furnishings overlooking a dingy courtyard. At the end of the corridor was a bathroom, a discouraging relic with ancient appointments. As far as I could tell, I was the hotel's only guest. I turned on the one feeble electric bulb over the bed and tried to read a newspaper I picked up in the lobby. I felt it advisable to keep my mind occupied. Dinsmith is decaying, squalor. But I wouldn't advise you to try. I want to know what the real horror here is. My fancies got the better of me, and I went to bolt the door, but was disturbed to find there was no bolt. 
One had been there, as marks clearly showed, but there were signs of recent removal. No doubt it had been out of order like so many other things in this decrepit edifice. Well, in my nervousness, I looked around and discovered a bolt on the clothes press, which seemed to be of the same size. I busied myself by transferring this hardware to the vacant place with the aid of a handy three-in-one device, including a screwdriver, which I kept on my keyring. The bolt fitted perfectly, and I was somewhat relieved when I knew that I, I could shoot it firmly upon retiring. There were adequate bolts on the two lateral doors to connecting rooms, and these I proceeded to fasten. I decided to read till I was sleepy and laid down with only my coat, collar, and shoes off. I took a hotel matchbook from the bedside ashtray and placed it in my pocket so that I could read my watch if I woke up later in the dark. That's when I heard it. At first I thought another guest was in the hotel, but there were no voices and the creaking was somehow subtly furtive. Was this one of those inns where travelers were slain for their money? Or were the townsfolk really so resentful about curious visitors? Without a shadow of a doubt, someone was trying to enter my room. I kept deathly quiet, awaiting the would-be intruder's next move. though I was. I knew the one thing to do was get out of that hotel alive as quickly as I could and through some other way than the front stairs and lobby. I rose to turn on the light. The power had been cut off. Clearly some cryptic evil movement was afoot on a large scale. Just what? I could not say. I tiptoed to the windows and saw only a sheer three-story drop to the cobbled courtyard. On the right and left, however, some ancient brick business blocks abutted on the hotel, their slant roofs coming to a reasonable jumping distance from my fourth-story level. To reach either of these buildings, I would have to be in a room, two from my own, either to the north or south. I could not risk the corridor where my footsteps would surely be heard and I might not be able to access the room. I would have to go through the less solidly built connecting doors of the rooms and use my shoulder as a battering ram if they were set against me. My outer door I reinforced by pushing the bureau against it, little by little, in order to make a minimum of sound. My chances were slender, but I was fully prepared for any calamity. Even getting to another roof, I'd still have to make it to the ground and flee. The door on the south side of the room opened in my direction, but the door on the north was hung to open away from me. It was locked from the other side, but I knew that must be my route. For a moment, I simply held my breath and waited. Eternity seemed to elapse, and the nauseous, fishy odor of my environment seemed to mount suddenly and spectacularly. I drew the bolt of the northward connecting door, bracing myself for the task of battering it open. The knocking grew louder, and I, I hoped that its volume would cover the sound of my efforts. I lunged again and again at the thin paneling with my left shoulder. The door resisted more than I expected, but I did not give in, and all the while the clamor at the outer door increased. 
I rushed into the next room and succeeded in bolting the hall door before the lock could be turned. But even as I did so, I heard the hall door of the third room, the one from whose window I had hoped to reach the roof below, being tried with a pass key. I made it into the third room and opened the window that offered the best access as they began an assault on the flimsy connecting door. Bedstead slowed their progress, despite their use of some kind of battering ram. The window was flanked by heavy velour draperies. I yanked at the hangings and brought them down, pulled and all, then quickly hooking two of the curtain rings in the shutter catch. I flung the drapery outside. The heavy folds reached fully to the abutting roof, and I saw that the rings and catch would be likely to bear my weight. It's a miracle you got out of there in one piece. I know. I landed safely on the steep roof and hurried to a gaping black skylight. I glanced at the window I just left and saw it was still dark. There seemed to be no one in the courtyard below, and I hoped I could get away before the spreading of a general alarm. I clambered over the brink of the skylight and dropped down onto the dusty floor. Oh, the place was ghoulish looking. And I struck a match. I made it once for the staircase, revealed by its feeble light. The steps creaked, and I raced down past a barn-like second story to the ground floor. I reached the lower hall and darted out the back door to the grass-grown cobblestones of the courtyard. I walked softly across the courtyard, looking for a door that would give me access to the street. I looked across the courtyard to the Gilman House, where a large crowd of doubtful shapes was pouring into the street. Lanterns bobbed in the darkness, moving uncertainly. They did not know where I had gone. Their features were indistinguishable, but the crouching shambled gate was abominably repellent. One figure was strangely robed and unmistakably surmounted by a tall tiara. We found out from the hotel. The fishy odor was detestable, and I, I wondered I could stand it without fainting. I opened a door off the courtyard and came upon an empty room with closely shuttered windows. Fumbling in the flicker of another paper match, I opened the shutters and tumbled out onto Washington Street. I headed south, hoping to make my way to the road to Arkham. I walked rapidly, close to the ruined houses. Ahead of me was an open square, fully flooded with moonlight. My best option was to cross it boldly and openly, imitating the typical shamble of the Innsmouth folk as best I could. No one was about, though a curious sort of buzz or roar seemed to be increasing in the direction of Town Square. South Street led down towards the waterfront, and I hoped that no one would be glancing up it from afar as I crossed in the bright moonlight. Involuntarily, I paused for a second to take in the side of the sea. <laughs> Gorgeous in the burning moonlight at the street's end. Far out beyond the breakwater was the dim, dark line of Devil Reef, and as I glimpsed it, I could not help thinking of all the hideous legends which portrayed this ragged rock as a veritable gateway to realms of unfathomed horror and inconceivable abnormality. Then, without warning, I saw intermittent flashes of light on the distant reef. Well, they were definite and unmistakable, and to make matters worse, there now flashed forth from the lofty cupola of the Gilman House, which loomed behind me, a series of analogous, though differently spaced gleams, which could be nothing less than an answering signal. What the whole proceeding meant, I could not imagine. Unless it involved some strange rite connected with Devil Reef, or unless some party had landed from a ship on that sinister rock. It was then that the most horrible impression of all was borne in upon me. I saw that the moonlit waters between the reef and the shore were alive with a teeming horde of shapes swimming toward the town. All the bobbing heads and flailing arms were alien and aberrant in a way scarcely to be expressed or consciously formulated. I heard the hue and cry of organized pursuit. They were blocking off the southward highway ahead of me. 
I had to find another way out of Innsmouth. And they were not following me directly. Rather, they were simply obeying a general plan of cutting off my escape. If they were patrolling this one, all roads out of Innsmouth were likely cut off. Then, I thought of the abandoned railway stretching off to the northwest. I'd seen it clearly from my hotel window and knew about how it lay. It seemed my only chance of deliverance, and there was nothing to do but try it. I consulted the grocery boy's map with the aid of one of my few remaining matches and soon started once more. I hurried along Babson Street until I reached Elliott Street. I heard noises and ducked behind a car. A sudden rise in the fishy odor nearly choked me. Then I saw a band of crouching shapes loping and shambling in the direction I was headed and knew that this must be the party guarding the Ipswich Road. Two of the figures I glimpsed were in voluminous robes and one wore a peaked diadem. When the last of the band was out of sight, I resumed my progress, darting around the corner. You know, my greatest dread was in recrossing moonlit South Street. At the last moment, I decided I'd better make the crossing, as before, in the shambling gait of an Innsmouth native. When the view of the water again opened out, I was determined not to look at it, but <laughs> I could not resist. I cast a sidelong glance as I shambled toward the protecting shadows ahead. The first thing which caught my eye was a small rowboat pulling in toward the abandoned wharves, laden with some bulky tarpaulin-covered object. Several swimmers were also still discernible, while on the far black reef I could see a faint, steady glow, unlike the winking beacon visible before, and of a curious color which I could not precisely identify. A fishy odor now closed in again with maddening intensity. I'd not quite crossed the street when I saw a muttering band advancing into the open square less than a block ahead of me. At this range, I could see the bestial abnormality of their faces and the dog-like subhumanness of their crouching gait. One man moved in a positively simian way, with long arms frequently touching the ground, while another figure, robed and tiarid, nearly hopped. I do not know whether they saw me or not. If they did, my stratagem must have deceived them, for they passed on across the moonlit space. No one was stirring on Bates Street beside the River Gorge, and it was an easy run past great brick warehouse walls. At last, I saw the ancient train station, or what was left of it, and made directly for the tracks that started from its farther end. The rails were rusty, but mainly intact, and not more than half the ties had rotted away. I hurried as best I could down the tracks which followed the side of the river gorge until I reached the long covered bridge which crossed the chasm at a dizzying height. I entered, stepping tie to tie. A cloud of bats flapped past me. About halfway across, there was a perilous gap in the ties. I risked a desperate jump, which fortunately succeeded, and I soon emerged on the far side of the river. The dense growth of weeds and briars hindered me, but also provided some covers. The tracks were clearly visible from the Rowley Road, which ran along the tracks before it cut across them. I glanced behind me, but saw no pursuer. The ancient spires and roofs of decaying Innsmouth gleamed, lovely and ethereal in the magic yellow moonlight, and I thought of how they must have looked in the old days before the shadow fell. Then, as my gaze circled inland from the town, something less tranquil arrested my notice. I saw motion. A very large horde must be pouring out of the city along the level Ipswich Road. The distance was great, and I could distinguish nothing in detail, but I did not at all like the look of that moving column. It undulated too much and glistened too brightly in the rays of the moon. Where could so many persons be coming from? I thought of those extreme Innsmouth types said to be hidden in, in crumbling sentry warrens near the waterfront, of those nameless swimmers I had seen. I mean, did those ancient, unplumbed warrens teem with a twisted, uncatalogued, and unsuspected life? Or had some unseen ship indeed landed a legion of unknown outsiders on that hellish reef? Who were they? Why were they here? 
tracks cut through a low hill and were heavily overgrown. I struggled along at a very slow pace, and the damnable fishy odor again waxed dominant. Had the wind suddenly changed eastward so that it blew in from the sea and over the town? Something was coming up the Rowley Road. I buried myself into the brush, praying that while I could see where the road crossed the tracks, they should not be able to see me. I could not bear to see the source of the sound. I would keep my eyes shut until the sound receded to the west. But my resolution to keep my eyes shut failed. It was foredoomed to failure, for who could crouch blindly while a legion of croaking, baying entities of unknown source flopped noisomely past, scarcely more than a hundred yards away? I thought I was prepared for the worst. My other pursuers had been accursedly abnormal, but nothing that I could have imagined. Nothing, even had I credited old Zadok's crazy tale in the most literal way, would be in any way comparable to the demonic, blasphemous reality that I saw in a limitless stream, flopping, hopping, croaking, bleeding, urging inhumanly through the spectral moonlight and a grotesque, malignant, saraband of fantastic nightmare. And some of them had tall tiaras of that, that nameless, whitish gold metal, and, and some were strangely robed, and one who led the way was clad in a ghoulishly humped black coat and striped trousers and, and had a man's felt hat perched on a shapeless thing that answered for a head. Good God. Did you ever really see them yourself, McGraw, uh, up close? They were a grayish green, though they had white bellies. They were mostly shiny and slippery, but the ridges of their backs were scaly. Their forms vaguely suggested the anthropoid, while their heads were the heads of fish with prodigious bulging eyes that never closed. At the sides of their necks were palpitating gills, and their long paws were webbed. And they hopped irregularly, sometimes on two legs and sometimes on four. And I was somehow glad that they had no more than four limbs. Their croaking, baying voices, clearly used for articulate speech, held all the dark shades of expression which their staring faces lacked. But for all their monstrousness, they were not unfamiliar to me. They were the blasphemous fish frogs of the nameless design, living and horrible. Their number was past guessing. It seemed to me that there were limitless swarms of them. In another instant, everything was blotted out by a merciful fit of fainting. The first I had ever had. You were lucky to get out of there alive, Olmstead. Lucky? <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Now, sometime afternoon the following day, I awoke on the tracks. It was raining a little. I staggered out to the roadway, but I saw no trace of any prints in the fresh mud. The fishy odor, too, was gone. I looked, but didn't see anyone. And you walked the tracks all the way to Rowley? That's right. I reported it to the Arkham Police, but they said it would be an issue for the Massachusetts State Police. Yeah, I don't think they believed me. That's when they sent me to you. And it's a good thing they did. Are the rumors true, McGraw? About a submarine firing torpedoes into the deeps off Devil Reef? Let's just say that the government's been very thorough about cleaning up this mess in Innsmouth. In fact, that's why I'm here today. We've been keeping an eye on you. On me? We suspect you haven't quite put Innsmouth behind you. What do you mean? We know you've been doing some genealogical research. Oh, yes. Well, after Innsmouth, I gave up the rest of my tour. But when I got to Arkham, I tried to collect some information about my family. The curator of the historical society there, Mr. E. Lapham Peabody, was very courteous about assisting me. So, your grandmother is Eliza Orne. Hmm. Something wrong, Mr. Peabody? Years ago, I helped, well, he would have been your maternal uncle with this same research. Your grandmother's a bit of a local mystery among the genealogically inclined. How do you mean? There's been plenty of discussion about the marriage of her father, Benjamin Orne, since the ancestry of his bride was peculiarly puzzling. Your great-grandmother, she would have been. She was understood to have been an orphaned marsh of New Hampshire, a cousin of the Essex County Marshes. 
but she'd been educated in France and knew very little of her family. A guardian had deposited funds in a Boston bank to maintain her and her French governess, but that guardian's name was unfamiliar to Arkham people. That's the mystery? Well, you see, no one's been able to place the recorded parents of the young woman among the known families of New Hampshire. It seems the records may have been falsified. Some say she was from another branch of the Marsh family. She certainly had the true Marsh eyes. Marsh eyes? Oh, you know them when you see them. You've got them yourself. Anyway, she died early at the birth of her only child, your grandmother. Wait, are you saying I'm a Marsh? No doubt about it. I see. I went directly home to Toledo to recuperate from my ordeal. In September, I entered my final year at Oberlin, but you know that from when you and your men came to see me on campus. Mm Mm-hmm. Just following up on some leads. Just like you've been following up on your family history, right? Well, you probably know I spent a week with my late mother's family in Cleveland last year. I did not relish the notion of a week in that depressing household, but I hope to learn more family history while among the Williamsons. My mother had never encouraged my visiting her parents as a child. My Arkham-born grandmother seemed strange and almost terrifying to me. I was eight years old when she disappeared. They say she wandered off in grief after the suicide of my Uncle Douglas, her eldest son. He'd shot himself after a trip to New England. The same trip, no doubt, which had caused him to be recalled by Mr. Peabody. Douglas resembled her, and I never liked him either. Something about their staring, unblinking expressions. My mother and Uncle Walter had their father's looks, though my poor cousin Lawrence, Walter's son, looked just like my grandmother. Yes, I spoke with your Uncle Walter. He's been very concerned about his son, your cousin Lawrence. And you. Your uncle showed you some things that once belonged to your grandmother, didn't he? Oh, yes. Agent McGraw. He did. So, Robert, researching the family tree, huh? Just putting the pieces together. I have some of your mom's old family papers on the orns. She had a safe deposit box. I think there's stuff in there, too. We'll go downtown and have a look. You feeling all right? I heard you fell ill back east last summer. Uh, It's just nerves, really. I'm better now. Thanks. I I meant to ask, um, how's Lawrence doing? Oh, he's still in the sanitarium over in Canton. They do the best they can for him, but... uh, I'm sorry. uh, What can you do? Going over the letters and pictures on the orange side, I began to acquire a kind of terror of my own ancestry. I struggled not to think about it. My uncle took me to my mother's bank. The safe deposit box is here. When you've finished, just lock it up and we'll return it to the vault. Thank you. Why did Mom keep papers in the safe deposit box? Oh, she had some of her grandma's old jewelry. There we go. Now let's see what she had in here. Here's someone's marriage certificate. Uh Photos. What do you think? A graduation? Yeah, it could be. Uh, What's in that cardboard box? That? Oh, well, it's... That's probably where she put your great-grandmother's old jewelry. Really? I wonder... Oh, they're weird old things. Grandma would look at them, but even she wouldn't wear them. Really, they're hideous. Hideous? May I? Are you all right, Robert? You're shaking. I'm fine. Fine. I think this one's a tiara. See? From that day on, my life has been a nightmare of brooding and apprehension. Is that what you came here to learn, Agent McGraw? Your great-grandmother was a Marsh whose husband lived in Arkham. And Zadok said that the daughter of Obed Marsh by a monstrous mother was married to an Arkham man through a trick. He also muttered about me having eyes like Captain Obed's. You know we were never able to question Zadok Allen. By the time my men raided Innsmouth, he had already disappeared. Imagine that. Obed Marsh, my own great-great-grandfather. 
Who or what, then, was my great-great-grandmother? I think you already know the answer to that, Olmstead. You should have left it all alone. No, Agent McGraw, it's you who should have left it alone. Olmstead, put down the gun. What are you doing? No sudden moves, please. I bought this pistol months ago, intending to kill myself, as my Uncle Douglas did when he, too, learned the truth. Easy now, Olmstead. This is all nothing to get worked up over. The, the jewelry might have been bought from some Innsmouth sailor, and that staring-eyed look you thought you saw in the faces of your grandmother and uncle is sheer fancy on you. Then why did my uncle kill himself after an ancestral quest in New England? No, if this is all sheer fancy, then why are you here now? We can help you, Olmstead. Put down the gun. No, McGraw, there's no help for me anymore. For more than two years, I fought off this sheer fancy. Oh, in the winter of 1930, the dreams began. Great watery spaces opened out before me, and I seemed to wander through titanic sunken porticos and labyrinths of weedy cyclopean walls with grotesque fishes as my companions. Then the other shapes began to appear, oh, filling me with nameless horror the moment I awoke. But during the dreams, they did not horrify me at all. I was one with them, wearing their trappings, treading their aqueous ways, and praying monstrously at their sea-bottom temples. Olmstead? Some frightful influence I felt was seeking gradually to drag me out of the sane world into unnameable abysses of blackness and alienage. Some odd nervous affliction had me in its grip, and I found myself at times almost unable to shut my eyes. I saw my face in the mirror with mounting alarm. My father and uncle seemed to notice it too, for they began looking at me almost affrightedly. What was taking place in me? Could it be that I was coming to resemble my grandmother and Uncle Douglas? Is that why they called you, McGraw? Homestead, please. We all just want to help you. Give me the gun, please. Don't do anything foolish. One night I dreamed I met my grandmother under the sea. She lived in a phosphorescent palace of many terraces, with gardens of strange leprous corals and grotesque brachiate efflorescences, and, and welcomed me. She had changed. See, as those who take to the water changed and told me she'd never died. Instead, she'd gone to a spot her dead son had learned about and had leapt to a realm whose wonders he'd spurned with a smoking pistol. This was to be my realm, too. I could not escape it. I would never die, but would live with those who had lived before man ever walked the earth. I met also that which had been her grandmother. For 80,000 years, Pithaya Lei had lived in Yohanneth Lei. She'd gone back after Obed Marsh was dead. Yohanneth Lei was not destroyed when your pathetic submarines shot death into the sea, McGraw. It was hurt, but not destroyed. The Deep Ones can never be destroyed. Oh, for the present, they rest, but someday they will rise again for the tribute great Cthulhu craves. It will be a city greater than Innsmouth next time. Oh, they've planned to spread. Oh, and have brought up that which will help them. But now they must wait once more. Olmstead, I'm warning you for the last time. I see you have a gun as well. Do you think I'm frightened? Last night I had a dream in which I saw Shoggoth for the first time. That's a sight to set me awake in a frenzy of screaming. Yeah, this morning the mirror definitely told me I have acquired the Innsmouth look. I'm not afraid of you, McGraw. I feel queerly drawn toward the sea deeps instead of fearing them. See, I hear and do strange things in sleep and awake with a kind of exultation. I do not need to wait for the full change as most have waited. If I did, you and my father would probably shut me up in a sanitarium like my poor little cousin. Stupendous and unheard of splendors await me below, and I shall seek them soon. Yeah, Relay, Cthulhu, Fatagan. 
No, I shall not shoot myself. I cannot be made to shoot myself. I shall plan my cousin's escape from that madhouse, and together we shall go to Marvel-shadowed Innsmouth. We shall swim out to that reef in the sea and dive down through black abysses to Cyclopean and many-columned Yohaneth lay. And in that lair of the Deep Ones, we shall dwell amidst wonder and glory forever! You've been listening to H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth, brought to you by our sponsor, Florida Lee, the cigarette made from the finest tobaccos. Florida Lee, a boon for a breathless age. Until next week, this is Chester Langfield reminding you to never go anywhere alone. If it looks bad, don't look, and save the last bullet for yourself. The Shadow Over Innsmouth was adapted for radio and produced by Sean Branny and Andrew Lehman. Original music by Troy Sterling Neese. The Dark Adventure Ensemble featured Leslie Baldwin, Sean Branny, Casey Camp, Mark Colson, Dan Conroy, Steve Coons, Matt Foyer, McCarran Kelly, Andrew Lehman, Barry Lynch, John McKenna, Josh Temke, and Noah Wagner. Tune in next week for Fate of the Ancients, a Nate Ward adventure. Dark Adventure Radio Theater is a production of the HPLHS Broadcasting Group, the subsidiary of HPLHS Incorporated, copyright 1931, plus 77. Fantastic job there by Dark Adventure Radio Theater. Check out more of their productions at hplhs.org. And with that, fellow weirdos, we close things out for this Halloween. But I would be remiss to do so without playing one of uh, Norm's songs, A Heartache Over Innsmouth. So stick around for that, and if you enjoy it and want to hook up with more of Norm's bizarre but seemingly popular music for whatever reason, you can find more at iTunes, Amazon, or directly from Drabblecast.org. Heartache Over Insmith is track three off the album The Esoteric Order of Sherman. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week and last, Tristan Tolhurst. Our program this week was brought to you by Bo Kaya, Abby Hilton, Tom Baker, Adam Pratt, Sandra O'Dell, a dead mole that your cat sacrificed on the front porch for some elder god, Jan Fisher, Jason Smith, and yours truly, Cryptkeeper Norm, reminding you, feed a man a fish, and you feed him for a day. Turn a man into a fish, and you feed him for a lifetime. I met this girl, and I really thought she was the one, you know? But then she joined this esoteric cult, and everything started to change. I felt like I hardly knew her anymore, with all the chanting and late-night rituals, the sudden appearance of gills above her clavicle. I told her one night, Baby, I'm sorry, but it's either Dagon or me. And she made her choice. I was the new kid in school A first year freshman theosophy major at Miskatonic U Wandering through my life in a daze there until I met you And your bulging watery eyes Felt like I was tied down with my insides Hanging out like a human sacrifice I asked you on a date Broken guttural whisper, you said, pick me up at eight. I remember how your hair and your spine curled and your shambling gait. Baby, you had me from the start, and 
I don't care about your ancient hideous gods They'll never keep us apart Cause you're my quasi ichthyan angel You're my half amphibian queen You're the overlord of my universe You're the tormentor of my dreams You're my starry-eyed web-foot wonderful You swallow my sanity you're my fish frog sweetheart, baby, let me be your filthy, gibbering lunatic breeze. There was magic in the air The first time I ran my hands through your patches of stringy yellow hair the first time I kissed your blistering lips When you whispered in my ear That you would be mine But when you finished transforming You were out the door and you never even said goodbye Here I am today While you're swimming in some non-Euclidean sunken city named Rulier And there's a cyclopean hole in my soul that I know Tormentor of my dreams